evading my pursuers hasn't been nearly as hard as figuring out where to go after leaving them in my dust. With their resources, they'll find me as soon as I get into view of a surveillance camera. And those things are getting harder and harder to spot, which makes avoiding them tricky. I figured giving them the slip on the turnpike was going to be impossible in the ombre, and I was right. Which is why I decided to head north. Once I got into Vermont's Green Mountains, I had the advantage. <laughs> City boys. These are the kind of hills you need a five-speed to climb especially the route I was planning to take. A sedan with a powerful engine may be great on the highway, but it's no match for a girl who knows how and when to downshift on a steep dirt road. They'd managed to track me as far as Rutland when I slipped onto this dirt road and went deep into the woods. Few people even know about the road running parallel to the National Forest here except locals. Just one more reason a writer likes to drive the back roads and listen in on conversations at local diners. Even if those boys in the Sebring were able to follow me up the mountain, they wouldn't have made it far on this rutted road. Why do you think they call it Rutland? I followed it all the way over the mountain and down into Rochester before my gas gauge was near empty. The other advantage to driving a vehicle with no electronics under the hood or on board is being that much harder to trace. Same goes for going without cell phones and other mobile devices. Don't have them and don't want them. But not for the reason you might think. It's too damn much input. Most writers prefer to starve their distractions and feed their focus. And I'm no different. It was my focus on that dream that told me to pull as much cash as I could out of the machine in Fitchburg and stick the cards with chips in them in my little Faraday case. Something about the dream was nagging at me, and as I parked the ombre outside Rochester and walked the distance from Quarry Hill Road to the nearest filling station with the gas can, I thought about it. If the technology exists to be able to not just observe a person's dreams, but manipulate them to gather information remotely, then those girls I'd been seeing in this strange series of dreams could be at risk. Getting information like their names and enough detail about their surroundings for someone with a vested interest and advanced technology to find them can't be in their best interest. I couldn't live with myself if someone with dark intentions found them through me. I had been toying with the idea of trying to locate them, maybe find a way to ask if they'd been seeing what I've been seeing in dreams, and if so, had they been able to make any sense out of it, especially the she-creature. But until I find out who's after me and why, it makes no sense to draw attention to those kids especially after encountering the woman in the diner. The one from my dream who shapeshifted into the she-creature? I still shudder when I think about it. Best I can do is think about it as little as possible and tell myself to go easy on the caffeine. Besides, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, right? What if the reason the CIA is chasing me doesn't have anything at all to do with my dream life? 
What if it has something to do with the novel I wrote about the bumbling intelligence analyst? The book that one reviewer called an absurdist romp through the intelligence industry's underwear drawer. Is it even possible that what I thought was entirely a fabrication of my imagination was actually real and they want to know where I got my information? I needed a safe, quiet place to lay low and think it through, and the cabin on Lake Champlain was just the spot. Ned said I was welcome to use it whenever I wanted, and right now I want. Big time. Taking the highway to Burlington was risky, but I was fairly certain I knew which side roads to veer off on in time to miss the most obvious cameras along the way. It was a risk I'd need to take if I wanted to make it there by nightfall. Ned's cabin is completely off the grid, which suits me just fine, but those woods leading up to it are deep, and I'd rather not try to hike them in the dark. My hunch was right about filling the gas can at Rodney's. No cameras. If it wasn't for the one at the intersection up the street, I could have come in the ombre and filled the tank. But this'll do me till I get to where I'm going. I can only hope my face isn't already on some database with a bolo alert. And if so, that this floppy, wide-brimmed hat covers enough of it to mess with the facial recognition software. I don't think I can go any further than this. Can we just, like, hang out here? Whether it was because of the impact Simone's YouTube videos of the paranormal activity in the house had on her, or the all-too-vivid gothic imagery in Wallace's poetry, the young Instagram-famous empath calling herself The Feels was not willing to go beyond the foyer when the two foster sisters invited her in. This energy is just too damn dark for me, she said. How can you live like this? Before either of them had a chance to answer, the house erupted into chaos. It was the kind of paranormal activity it usually reserved for the middle of the night, especially during certain phases of the moon associated with extreme high tides. It began quietly at first, with just the faint rustling of what Wallace thought was a breeze disturbing Betty's vintage chintz curtains in the drawing room. But there was no breeze, and the window wasn't open. And then there was the distinct thuds, some softer than others, some sharp enough to make her worry about Betty's leaded crystal pieces. As usual, her sense of dread was overshadowed by her sense of responsibility. She had to check it out. Simone switched the cell cam on and followed Wallace to the arched doorway of the room, 
in time to see the ottoman in front of the settee levitate and then turn upside down before dropping back down in front of the settee which sat askew legs up the lace doilies from its armrests had been carelessly tossed into the corner drawn by the complexity of wallace's feelings and unable to contain her own curiosity marina followed them to the doorway and stood transfixed at the sight of every single object in the room carefully turned upside down except for the crystal vase with betty's prize long stem roses sitting on the floor in the center of the room wallace walked toward it relieved it hadn't been dumped on the hard wood floor betty had just made both girls hand polish that floor and having to repeat the chore because water had been dumped on it was not an option as she reached down to pick it up the roses gently lifted out of the vase and turned ninety degrees their sharply pointed stems facing wallace they abruptly shot at her as though fired from a cannon aimed right at her face she reflexively shut her eyes in time to protect them but that's all that escaped injury it wasn't until later when she watched simone's video that she saw the force of the floral projectile that had knocked her back several feet and left her with puncture wounds and deep abrasions on her face and neck before she could fully regain her balance the vase began to spin wildly as though in the center of some unearthly gyre the centrifugal force created a water spout in the middle of the room that rose to the ceiling without so much as a drop landing on anything there was no way it would last though it would eventually spend its energy and send that water splashing all over the room without thinking marina rushed to wallace and grabbed her arm you need to get out of here major she cried pulling wallace out into the hall and back to the foyer before returning to slam the massive wooden door shut while simone got it all on camera just why she was so concerned about the water from that vase getting into wallace's open sores was something she explained as wallace sat on a kitchen stool while she and simone cleaned the wounds it wasn't fear of infection or rather it was fear of infection just not from any pathogen known to science she explained that in certain schools of psychology water is said to symbolize emotion the deeper and murkier the water the more complex the emotion clinical psychologists are trained to ask patients to discuss their dreams and listen carefully for any about water it can be an indicator that the patient is becoming suicidal that water was highly charged with something more powerful and more angry than anything i've ever felt she said and it's the last thing you or anyone else would want getting into their system through a portal like an open wound it was simone who pointed out that whatever it was that set off the surge of high strangeness certainly did a good job of getting marina past her fear of venturing deeper into the house yes marina replied almost as if it knew exactly how to pull me in you think maybe someone or something wants a closer look just one question wallace said 
Why'd you call me Major? Marina just shrugged and told them, It's something Cassandra keeps repeating in her dreams. Actually, it's Major Tom. I figure it's because you're a warrior poet, living in a war zone on occupied planet Fantod, dude. All three of them had their backs turned to the sink, so didn't notice the faucet being turned on until water was gushing from it. The knobs continued to turn as some unseen force loosened them to the point of coming off in Simone's hand. She had to put the cell cam down to wrestle with them while Marina shielded Wallace from the water spout that formed above the sink, so was unable to film it as it happened. At least she had the one from the drawing room on camera. She also wasn't able to film the apparition she was sure she saw out of the corner of her eye. It disappeared when she looked right at it, but she was certain what she saw out beyond the orchard in Humboldt Bay was a giant limb rising above the water, like what you'd see on an octopus the size of a ten-story building. It seemed to be reaching for the water spout that towered above it, the kind of water spout you might see on a stormy day. But the morning fog had lifted, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. The thing I've always loved about being this far north of the equator is the lusciously long twilight. It left me with enough light to cover the ombre with brush and hike the half-mile to the cabin without tripping over anything on the path. Ned has always been a creature of habit and, as usual, left coffee plus some dried goods and canned foods in the pantry. It would be enough to sustain me until I could figure out how to pick up some fresh foodstuffs in town without being spotted by the geek squad. For now there was coffee, and a place to sleep stretched out in relative safety. What more could a girl want? I didn't want to risk drawing attention to my presence by lighting a lantern once night fell. Better safe than sorry. So I sat on the splintered wooden porch and let my eyes adjust to the light of the stars and crescent moon reflecting off the lake. It had been too long since I'd visited Champlain. Four, maybe five years? Long enough to have forgotten the soothing song of her waves lapping gently on her sandy shoreline. So soothing, in fact, I drifted off to sleep right there on the porch the Lake Champlain lullaby rocking me right into a war zone, one of images hitting me in a barrage of whispered sound and inescapable visions coming at me rapid fire, less terrifying than incomprehensible. I couldn't understand why the stars looked different, or why David Bowie was there, insisting it isn't the dreams I remember that matter. It's the ones I don't. 
Can you hear me, Major? He says. They still have an effect whether you remember them or not. What dreams, I want to ask. But before I can, he answers. He says, Champ again. The dreams about him, even the ones I've forgotten, are showing me he's just one of the lieutenants in Dark Energy's army. He says it's a war and calls me Major Tom. It's time to put your helmet on before it all gets sucked into the maelstrom, he says. Is this voice whispering to me, Champ? Or is it you, I ask him. But all he does is repeat the word, Champ. Do you mean the lake? Lake Champlain? He nods his head toward the water. I turn to see a giant water spout form on the surface. Some kind of sea monster resembling a cross between an octopus and a giant black fish with barracuda teeth the size of a bus lifts up out of the water as if being levitated by the water spout. I want to ask if that's the Leviathan living in a lake, and if he was the one who wrote the song about it I heard in that dream. Vermont is a border state, after all. But the water spout releases the sea monster, and it splashes down. It wakes me with such a start, I turn to the lake, expecting to be washed away in the giant waves it had to have created. But there is no wake. Only the familiar buzz of the dragonfly I've come to know. It circles my head and then hovers inches from my face, just as the one from my dreams has done when it wants to draw my attention to something important. It returns to the tall man standing on the shore with his back to me. He gazes out at that point on the water where the sea monster had appeared in the dream. Or is it the tall man? This wave washing over me is the one that always does when I'm in that space between a dream and waking life and having trouble orienting myself. But this is more disorienting than anything I've experienced. Because for a moment, I could swear it's David Bowie. He turns, and I can clearly see it is the tall man. He tips his hat the way he always does in dreams, and walks away. The dragonfly follows the way it's always done in dreams. And at first I'm certain I'm still asleep, and this is just a dream and nothing out of the ordinary for my extraordinary dream life. The tall man is a frequent visitor in my dreams. So is the dragonfly. Until the sting of a splinter from sleeping on the porch alerts me to the fact that this is waking life. And David Bowie's voice comes to me, again, clear as a bell. Not as words traveling up my auditory cortex, though, but as thoughts that weren't there before arriving in my center of knowledge, yet as recognizable as turning on the radio, just as the song Space Oddity comes on, and knowing it's him. He's saying if he can get through to me in death, I can certainly get through to those girls in dreams. They're in danger, and they need your help. But how? How have you always done what you do? Strangely, don't bend. Stay strange. 
strange or odd i thought as he and his dragonfly disappeared into thin air leaving behind an almost imperceptible energy ripple like i've seen heat do as it rises from asphalt in the desert it trailed outward from that point and lingered like twilight for a brief moment a silent burst of tiny golden sparks trailed down like a meteor shower as the last of that energy disappeared into the cool morning air i knew without a shred of doubt something i may never be able to put words to had just begun